Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We've had a while away from you. Two series have gone by of this show, Best of Worst of British, where myself, Lorcan Mullen, and my two co-hosts, co-host number one, in alphabetical order. That's you, Mike. Yes, it is. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was working out um, front names and last names, but in both situations, it is me. Yeah, it's both, in, it both ways, me. it's you. Yeah, I'm grand. How are we doing? <laughs> Have you said your name? <laughs> oh, yes. Um, well, it's series three. Surely they know. Surely they know that I am the world-known Michael Bell. Co-host number two, please announce yourself. Uh, I am Thomas Hodkinson. Hello. Hello, Thomas. So we'll be releasing this at the end of the year, Christmas time. We don't, we don't pre-record or anything like that, even though it's pretty obvious that we're not in the same location together as if there was some sort of distancing order still sort of in place. What? <laughs> Still, it's Christmas. <laughs> it is Christmas time. Surely Santa would take away the COVID. Come on, yes. Santa, sort it out, mate. <laughs> Your mates with Jesus, you can do anything. <laughs> Jack Frost is nibbling at my toes. I really should put that DVD box back in its place. Do you um, draw eyes on the box so it's got a mouth and then chomp it down on your foot? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's what I do. <laughs> I'm very literal with my. Like, uh, for someone who's afraid of puppets, you like to, like, humanize everything. I like puppets. <laughs> I don't like it when they eat food. That is weird. When the cookie monster <laughs> oh, tries know, to eat I cookies. Know it, I know it's weird. I'm not, I'm not, um, saying it's not, you know. No, I mean, the, I meant the cookie monster. Oh, I was on right. your side. The oh, cookie cool. monster trying to eat cookies is an alarming sight. Yeah, where does uh, it. What? And where what does it a litter go? bug. Exactly. And it's like, and then those Domeo adverts came along and they, they messed me up. Like, oh yeah, those are a bit creepy. You can't eat lasagna! You're made of felt! <sighs> what is also creepy is how Richard Curtis views modern day relationships. And with that segue, we're going straight into our first film of series three of Best of Worst of British. And of course, to keep up with our Christmas theme, as I'm surrounded by baubles and trinkets in front of me on my laptop screen, we're talking about the 2003 romantic comedy drama ensemble piece of work that is Love Actually. Throughout the years, working title films and writer Richard Curtis have captured the euphoria, hysteria, and humiliation of love. With the films Four Weddings and a Funeral, Notting Hill, and Bridget Jones's Diary. This holiday season, join this unforgettable filmmaking team. Welcome, Prime Minister. This is Natalie. Hello, David. I mean, sir. 20 years ago, you'd have been just his time. <laughs> As they explore that time of year. When desires are revealed. I'm in love. Aren't you too young to be in love? No. Oh, no, well, okay. Secrets are exposed. Your secretary is very pretty. Mister. Be careful there. And chances are finally taken. All I want for Christmas is you. Universal Pictures invites you. What's the best sex you've ever had? Britney Spears. No, I ain't kidding. <laughs> she was rubbish. To take everything you know about love. You have this kind of problem? Yeah, of course you did, you saucy mings. And multiply it by eight. Would you excuse me for one second? 
Okay, that's done. This will be... Hugh Grant, Liam Neeson, Colin Firth, Laura Linney, Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, Rowan Atkinson, Kira Knightley. Christmas is the time to be with the people you love. Yeah, I need a car. This holiday season. Hello, does Natalie live here? All you need. Oh. Hello. Is love actually? Are you seeing carols? Uh, I suppose I could. He's thirteen. Good King Wenceslas looked out on the feast of Stephen. When the snow lay round about, deep and crisp and even. So, Love Actually, I did not see that one at the cinema. I remember watching it a few years later, and I didn't like it even then. I remember my line about it was that it was so sickly sweet, I thought it was going to give me diabetes. Uh, but it turns out that was my diet and lack of exercise. Oh, hang on, hang on. That is joke number one of the series. Tick it off. Yep. Joke number one. Yep. Tick it off. One, one of four. Like a note. One of four. Uh, we're going to overload it if we go for a second one here, guys. So, you know. The next one comes in episode six. Keep your rationing up. You've only got three more, so, you know, be careful. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I saw it on DVD or on the telly a few years after it was released. How about both of you guys? Did either of you see it at the cinema at the time or... Well, I was 13, so I had no interest in it whatsoever. And I would have been, what, 17, I suppose? And you didn't like films. Still don't. Still don't very much maintain <laughs> that. And no, 17, I was too busy being a rock star, so... Yeah. Oh, well, you know, you'll, you'll relate to at least one of the characters in this film. <laughs> so, is this your first time watching it, then, for both of you? No, because it's the most available or owns DVD without anyone actually owning the DVD. Because when I was at uni in 2006... Every single person on my flat, so there's ten people, ten people a row, three three rows, so thirty people. Every single one somehow had a copy of it. None of them bought it. Well, did they all have like rental copy at the top of it? I don't know well. where they came from. It's just we had like a million copies of it. I'm guessing they were just shitty Christmas gifts. And when it, when people started watching at Christmas time, I refused to because everyone had a copy. So no, I'm not watching it. So this was my first viewing. How about you, Tom? I'm I'm sure I've seen it at some point. I can't even remember. I've, it may have even been put on the last week of Christmas in school oh, as God. a video. Really? God, you're young. Yeah, I, I told you I was 13 when it came out. So by the time the DVD was out, I would have been 14, 15. Are they not aware of um? Like Laura Linney and Stacy from Gavin and Stacy Boobage, that they would. Uh... I, I mean, what was the certificate on the on the box? Must have been a fifteen, surely. Are you sure? Yeah, they say fuck. Yeah, they do. Well, that's the thing. Like a few people do swear. Oh no, I've just made our podcast a fifteen. Ah. A few people do. Yeah, but as long as you do it in a charming manner, as Bill Nye does throughout the whole film, or Hugh Grant, or Tiff from EastEnders, you know, we'll be all right. Uh, I mean, don't mean to jump into your uh, niche, Michael, but uh, very early on, you discover which ones are in EastEnders. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> this is weird, actually. This is Marty McCutcheon's one claim to fame outside of EastEnders and, and a singing career. But I mean, like, if she went to America, people would recognise her for anything. It would be for Love Actually. But then you'd probably find out that, like, Perfect Moment was, like, number one in Bulgaria for nine years or something like that, you know? Actually hungry, not a million miles off. <laughs> Do you know what I found out the other day about Hungary? Other than it's, you know, run by a corrupt, horrible person. I assume they're still in power. In, I mean, on Christmas they are still in power. Unless not, then I celebrate that. 
uh, with all the tinsel surrounding me. They are the country with the highest number of obese children. Hungary has the highest number of obese children in Europe. They've taken the crown. Well, we are second place. I thought we were up there with teen pregnancies and obesity at one stage. We were champions. <laughs> then it turned out one was a mistake of the other, so we went up in one chart <laughs> and down in the other chart. How very I mean, dare they... you! <laughs> the Bulgarians have got nothing else on teen pregnancies. <laughs> one thing I did want to ask, because obviously this film isn't made for us. It's a rom-com. Not, we you know, we're three men in our in our 30s who are bitter about life. But Tom is in a new relationship now, and I wondered if he's going to be less angry this series, and is he going to be more accepting of like rom-coms and stuff because of it? Nope! Yay! Nope. <laughs> <laughs> he still sees through the lies. Correct answer. This whole thing to me smacks of laziness, to be honest. I feel like this is four or five ideas that Richard Curtis did a first draft for as a feature film themselves couldn't stretch the idea out far enough, so he just took out some of his favourite bits and then pieced it all together and said, oh, and they're brother and sister, or they know each other from work. I've actually done some research. You're not a million miles off. Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. If there's a recurring theme in this whole film, it's men in high positions of power falling in love for women in lower statuses in their relationship, and preferably the least that those women will talk, the more those men will be in love with those women. Yeah, there's not a great deal of talking from the women in this, is there? <laughs> no. Not a, tr- not a tremendous amount. Well, we start off most, probably the most famous storyline in the whole thing is Hugh Grant as the charming Prime Minister that Tony Blair will be convinced was based on him, who is swept into power finds himself falling in love almost immediately with his... Well, she's the tea lady, but occasionally she gets to bring in pieces of paper for him. <laughs> we've, got, we've got no tea for you. Here's a folder. Go on. <laughs> Being played, of course, by Martine McCutcheon from EastEnders. Do you know any other acting role she's done other than Tiffany and Love Actually? I mean, but for a CV like that, you don't have to do anything else. That's like um, Slade. (laughs) It's a Christmas film. It's played every year. People watch it all the time. She gets her money then. That is true, yeah. She must get some residuals from that on a yearly basis. After Hugh Grant gives a little opening monologue as... You know, Richard Curtis saying, oh, the great unifier of us all at airports, because obviously everyone in the world is able to afford flights to and from other countries. He does that at 1 minute 48. There's a 9-11 reference. That is the most shockingly, like... (laughs) What's that all about? Come on, guys. I know 9-11's recent, but cheer up. I do love the idea that he's written this initial draft and then, like, he'd written it in 2001, 9-11 happened, he went, well... We're just going to have to talk about it, aren't we? So then we cut from, like you say, sudden swift cut from referencing to 9-11 to Bill Nye singing a cover version of Love is All Around but replacing Love with Christmas and Go with Snow at some point. Rapsy Nesbitt in double denim. Yes, whilst Bill Nye swears charmingly because he can't get the bad lyrics right. And they're just making fun of all these cynical cash-ins. But I'm trying to figure out who Bill Nye essentially meant to be. Like, is he meant to be like a sort of a Rod Stewart, Mick Jagger figure, or is he meant to be like a a flash in the pan, more like an, I don't know, an Alvin Stardust kind of guy, or, or a Shakin Stevens sort Definitely of. comes across as more of a, um, a Jagger sort of type, because he's more of a, an outrageous character than... Perhaps say a shaky was. Just call, just say he's Iggy. That'll yeah, <laughs> can you imagine? He wishes he was fucking Iggy, mate. Oh, Iggy does bloody insurance adverts now. He's got, that he is would true. do a Christmas song. 
what will be your Iggy Pop cover? You've got to cover a popular song and put Christmas into it. I want to be your snow dog. I am the Santa Claus. <laughs> and I ride a musley. That works too well for them to have not at least pitched that to him <laughs> at some point. Come on, I Iggy. Mean, Come on. Has. Come on. So it turns out at this point that we're five weeks away from Christmas, although they think that's the exact right time you record and produce a Christmas... Well, I suppose the X Factor people are doing that as well, so... Yeah, you do it in August like anyone else, you do a Christmas special. Yeah. God's sake. That's absolutely what you do. You do it the third week in August when you're still in your shorts. Yeah, yeah. A week after a heatwave. Yeah. (sighs) Who would record something in August to re-release to Christmas? What a stupid, stupid notion. No idea, but I'm going to have to pause this record, guys, because my Christmas tree just fell over. Oh, oh no. no! Then we cut to Colin Firth, who's late and has to leave for something without his very ill wife, telling her how much he loves her. Liam Neeson's telephoning Emma Thompson, but she's too busy because her children are getting ready for the nativity play, and she also makes a charming quip about how Neeson's recently a widower and how funny that is. That's one of the weird things about this whole film, like heartlessly cruel quips throughout the whole film about people's weights or recent bereavements <laughs> or anything else like that. Turns out Thompson's daughter is going to play the first lobster in the nativity scene. Well, that's a Daily Mail article waiting to happen now, isn't, isn't it? it? Just... They've ruined Christmas and now they're using inconsistent historical crustaceans in the scene as well. It wasn't even kosher. <laughs> yeah, but... As someone who's had to, you know, work with kids and on school nativities, by the end, you just, oh, any fucking animal, seriously, what have, we got, what have we got upstairs in the costume department, I say costume department, on the rack upstairs of the costumes we've had for 20 years? We've got, we've got six sheep, yeah, that'll do, yeah, how, how many, how, what's that, a chicken? Yeah, fuck it, a chicken in there, it's fine, it's fine. A parrot? Yeah, fine, whatever, whatever, it does Labradoodles didn't exist until 2010. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just whatever they can find. So fair play for them for that. Like, I can respect that. I was wondering if the reason they did that was they can't have like 17 of them play sheep. Because it's always like first sheep, second sheep. And if someone was 17th sheep... You can, and you do, every single year. <laughs> I suppose you just lie to them all and say which... No, no your son was second sheep, that's right. And then we quickly get my least favourite storyline of the whole film. And, you know, it's jostling for position when we see Chris Marshall really banking those I was relevant in 2003 chips by getting into a Richard Curtis movie and sexually harassing every woman in the office as he gives them chocolate treats or whatever it is he's supposed to be giving them. There's a real lack of clarity over pretty much everyone's job. Even Hugh Grant as Prime Minister, I don't think he really knows what Hugh Grant's supposed to do as Prime Minister. Yeah, it's um, it's a bit of an odd tangent to go on of Chris Marshall. He's just after some Christmas sex. Yeah. It's such a tone of whiplash to the rest of the film, and it's within its own reality as well when he finally gets his payoff. It's like the rest of the film is trying to do something with maybe a little bit of magical realism in maybe the Rowan Atkinson character. I'm not sure, but everything else is still sort of like as grounded in reality as like four weddings and a funeral or something like that is. But Chris Marshall's in a fucking fantastical American Pie film. Yeah, but at the same time, the last time I did visit the US, my accent was the talk of the town. Yes, but did it get you January Jones, Alicia Cuthbert, uh, Shannon Elizabeth and Denise Richards? No, no, Denise Richards wasn't there, but the rest of them. 
Yeah, okay. They just pushed it too far at the end. Let's see, last time I went to America, I did. I tried the British thing quite a lot, but I was in New York and they just didn't give a shit. It feels like Richard Curtis knows his way around a movie set. They want to bring in those experiences into what they write. But the whole thing with Tim from The Office and Stacy from Gavin and Stacy. What film are they stand-ins for? What kind of film has ever been like this, ever? Like, I don't even, like, Nine and a Half Weeks or Basic Instinct have as many various sex scenes that need body stand-ins for. I, I mean, I'm not as familiar with film sets and the uh, the ins and outs. Wait. Well, the stand-ins. The, the stand-ins' job is to essentially help the pre... You know, before they set up the shot to get the lighting and the camera blocking in place. So they have to, they have to be the same sort of heights as the actors that they're playing, you know... Very often they'll use people who also work as stuntmen to do that, you know? And and often it'll be people that follow around actors throughout their whole career, essentially. Which must be a surreal life to live. You know, being, like, Tom Cruise's body double or something like that. Or, yeah, but not, then, not even, like, stunt then, double, like, stand-in, you know? Usually Tom Cruise's body doubles all hit puberty and they've got to get new ones. So yeah, it's never that's really, the problem, isn't it? Yeah. Never really that longevity of career. I have to say, as a as a privileged six foot five man, uh, and I'm standing for up for all the five foot eight, five foot nine guys. I don't appreciate that joke. I'm personally offended. Privileged tall bastard. Boo, fucking who? Get a pair of stilettos and then talk to me afterwards. Uh, next time I go and charge you, you'll do that holding them off by the hand to the head, <laughs> so I can't reach you. With not this. Stop charging at me then. Yeah, well, you know, it's it's too much fun. I'm going from the side this time. <laughs> from up in the air. And then we get to probably the second most famous storyline and probably the most referenced thing in the whole film. And that's the whole situation with Andrew Lincoln from Walking Dead. And scenes of a sexual nature. Yes, of course. Yes, he is. He gets in trouble with that with his with his wandering eyes and that as well, doesn't he? Yes, he does. So him and Chiwetel Edgy 4 are best mates and he's... Did the stag party for him, so you know he's best man for the wedding, unfortunately. Oh, he hired male strippers instead of female strippers. Some of the many instances of light transphobia and homophobia that sprinkle this film charmingly throughout. Yeah, other that there's no LGBT uh, romance in this whole thing. That's what I thought, which is what they kind of... Weirdly, the twist turns out that it's... It's it's all like the implication at the start seems to be that maybe he's been in love with Chiwetel Ejiofor this whole time, and doesn't like you know, and is is sad that Ejiofor is marrying the eighteen year old Kira Knightley, eighteen year old at time of release. Love takes all. Um, love also takes several years to reach before you decide you want to commit to a wedding. Usually, he looks old enough to be a teacher. <laughs> Maybe that's the plot. Maybe we don't know. Maybe he's an art teacher. See, the biggest issue I had with the whole that whole wedding scene was that when um, Kira is coming down to the ring, down the aisle, down the ring, <laughs> coming down <laughs> the you aisle. Yes, yeah, down the aisle, down the aisle. Um, he's like going to he's going to the other one. Oh, good luck, mate! And he gives him the oddest handshake I've ever seen in my life. It's like he's going half in for a hug, but not no. And he so he just grabs him by the shoulder. <laughs> It's really strange. They're best it's, mates. Yeah. That's what that's what friends, youthful friends, do now. I, I imagine that was in the script, like Rich Curtis too. They do an elaborate handshake or something like that. No, it was just a really bad handshake. It was just it... Lincoln and Edgy Ford just forgot. <laughs> 
to be fair, Mike, you don't like any human interaction. All of this will be new to you. Oh, I'm not. I'm not a hugger. Don't get me wrong. But it was just the oddest, oddest handshake I've seen. It was just really weird. So yeah, they get married, and, and then it turns out Lincoln has set up like a, a large choir to sing them as they leave. Your favorite band and mine, Tom, the Beatles. I quite like this. To be fair, this was quite. This is a nice little thing. While we're on the subject of the band playing the song, did anyone else notice that the lead singer of the choir seemed like a Poundland version of Seal? Nobody noticed that, Tom, because that's a reference from 20 years ago. There always seems to be a choir available for any kind of gig. It's like, um, you know, like WrestleManias, if they need a choir, we're going to be able to get a choir. It's like hip-hop artists need a choir, they're going to be able to get a choir. Choir for hire. Is there a job that they can get no choir for? Like, could Ramstein get, like, a, a, a church choir to come to one of their gigs? Well, if Metallica can get a string section, then I'm yeah. pretty sure <laughs> Ramstein could get an entire choir. You give me half an hour, I can get you a choir. We're looking to expand into video content. That could be a fun sort of Challenge Annika spin-off series. Mike finds a choir. I could absolutely find... Half an hour in town, I could find a choir. <laughs> get me a choir. I could easily find a choir. Easy. Do, do we have a, a minimum number to constitute it being a choir? I think a dozen. It's, yeah, a dozen sounds about right. I can get 12. I can get 12 choir. Yeah. yeah going to need 45 minutes for that one, though. Yeah, I'll, <laughs> I'll need an extra half hour for that. And they have to be, like, wearing all the hassocks or whatever it is that choirs wear. Oh, yeah, they've got to have the full get-up. They can't just be in the street clothes. Uh, you, no, you didn't mention, you didn't mention outfits. So that was going to take an extra hour. That's included. That's just naturally included. You don't know your choirs, son. I can get you a. I can easily get you by. I love the idea of you racing to a sixty-minute dry cleaners. I mean, it could it could happen. It could happen. Yeah, Chiwetel Ejiofor happily walks off with a, an eighteen-year-old Kira Knightley, and the pair of them are married. Colin Firth coming back. All we know is that they're friends in some way, shape, or form. I just think he goes to random weddings of an afternoon just to <laughs> appease himself. It's something to do, isn't it? Yeah. But before he goes to the reception, he comes back home to find his brother there, and the wife very. Fortunately, saying a full, this will sum up the plot. Uh, hurry up, big boy! I'm naked and I want you at least twice before Colin Firth comes home. It's like I really should have cut out her saying Colin Firth, but you know. And that's the end we see of that relationship uh, with both his wife and his brother. It turns out that Chris Marshall's in catering at the reception, again hassling various people, including Laura Linney and a brief appearance from Julia Davis. Quality of the catering, and it turns out she is head of catering. So. Uh, that joke was originally supposed to be in uh, Four Weddings and a Funeral, by the way. Ah, so Two he's grams. literally cop- copying his own. <laughs> yeah, he's literally cut, <laughs> copy, paste his own fucking stuff. Has he just put all of his random drafts of various films into a shredder and then asked an assistant to glue them together and this is the film we've got? Yeah, kind of. Yeah, I kind yeah. of respect him for that. <laughs> like, I'm Richard Curtis. I can do what the fuck I want. I'm Richard Curtis. I'll buy anything. It's like <laughs> he walks into working title with just a big ball of paper well, and just know, slams it on the desk and go start pre-production. Well, I mean, I was I was gonna say this this for the end, but this isn't a film. It's a Radio Two playlist with movie around it. <laughs> It's not a film. But I genuinely think he's, he's like five or six songs and he's like, let's get the most contrived way we can possibly get them in. Bye Bye Baby is there twice. One time at a funeral. That's the rest of his day gone. You know, he's, he's, he's laughing at that all day. But he's picked like four or five songs and just so contrived the way he gets them in. Makes me think he started with the songs and worked backwards. That is true, actually. Like his last film was just, hey, the Beatles were great, weren't they? 
Chris Marshall realises that he can't find love, and like all creepy men who do really horrible things, uh, he assumes that it's the women's fault. So he tells his mate that he's going off to America, who replies, and this is his best mate, by the way, you're a lonely, ugly asshole. You must accept it. Yep, that's how, that's quite right. I mean, if that doesn't start the incel movement, I don't know what will. And then we realise that that guy is also, why he's there at the, the event, I'm not sure, because he's also, his job is to be first assistant director to the the film with Tim from The Office and Stacey from Gavin and Stacey. I thought I was going mad and I had to rewind it several times. Yeah, I was really worried that I was being racist. Like, I don't think that they just look the same. It is the same guy. I, I need this to be the same guy. Because it does a weird thing of cutting from him to that scene to the other scene. And usually the way these things work, you wouldn't see the same character in another, like, in these ensemble things, you know? Or at the very least, they could have had him getting up from the seat, going into the set, and then setting up into the next scene in one fluid motion. Don't just cut to him being in another place in different clothes. But yeah, all it needed was he was having a scene chatting to Chris, what his name, from my family. And then someone coming over, assistant saying, oh, we need you in studio or whatever. That's all it needed. Or he could just go, I've got to go, I've got to block this sex scene. Instead they made a sweat. Will someone not think of the white man for once when they're making these films? (laughs) (laughs) We're just asking for a bit of consideration. I mean, this is the whitest film I've ever seen. And then we get Liam Neeson giving his eulogy and the wife tried to turn it into a wacky comedy bit. (laughs) So I think in the scoreboard we're now one wedding or one funeral up, so we've got three more weddings to go. Yes, that's true, actually. I'm worried like that. People who want their funerals to be a celebration. No one wear black or anything like that. And it's just... I think very often those things don't work out very well at all. I've never been to one like that. But, you know, it's like, did you see the one in Ireland recently where they'd done a recording of him uh, as they were putting the, the coffin yeah. into the ground and then suddenly someone started playing a recording of him going, Hello, I'm not dead. Can someone let me out, please? And it was like, it was kind of funny, but then you're watching it and it goes on for like two I'd minutes. I absolutely do that. The guy who did the voice, he wasn't able to milk it like we can this guy's. You know, he was just sort of repeating the same gag over and over again and everyone was laughing at the start. And by the end, it's like kind of, yeah, we get we get the joke, mate, but we've got to get to the, the reception. So can you get a move? <laughs> like, kind of moment. Real creativity is on the graveyard. On the, on the tombstone, sorry. Oh, yeah, like the, the Spike Milligan, I told you I was ill. My favourite one is there's an old um, Billy Conley thing where he wants to have um, on his in tiny, tiny, tiny writing. So you've got to go in and have a look and go further in onto the um, sort of tombstone patch. And it's just in tiny writing, you're standing on my balls. <laughs> <laughs> so I just think, yeah, I think your most creativity has got to be on your deathbed. It's got to be on the on the tombstone. I have this idea of like what I would would be a funny thing to do, I always thought. And I'm not even a fan of him, but I've just got this idea of suddenly, when the funeral's supposed to happen, just suddenly you start hearing... And have the coffin go on motorised wheels and start running around, like, it going around the church and maybe hire a few women to act as, like, dressed up in funeral things and they're being chased by the coffin. Or at the very least, get the pallbearers, like, to really run with the coffin. I always thought that would be a fun thing to do at a funeral. It's a weird thing to think about, but, you know, you're not there, so fuck it. (laughs) But yeah, we go back to the wedding reception. They do a clever little cut of them having Bye Bye Baby playing at both uh, the funeral and the reception. Uh, Lincoln's depressed, and Laura Linney walks over and asks if he was in love with Edgy for, which is, like I said, that's a more interesting story than what it turns out to be. 
because it turns out that he also is in love with the 18-year-old Kira Knightley. He had it for chemistry and biology, all right? I had it for physics. I didn't stand a chance. You know, one of the things that's most annoying about this film is seeing great actors working with not great material. Obviously, we just had Laura Linney. Laura Linney, sorry. Linney. And now we've got... <laughs> And now we've got Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. Alan Rickman. Asking his secretary how she is before Laura Linney turns up. It turns out Rickman's her boss. And like all sensible bosses, he makes sure to ask her questions about the guy that she fancies in the office and tells her to ask him out. Because that's what bosses do. uh, While we're on the subject, I do have an interesting factoid about uh, Laura Linney's casting. So, uh, during the the casting process, Curtis told his casting director that he wanted a Laura Linney type. They auditioned numerous British actresses. He kept saying, I want a Laura Linney type. And so, at one point, the casting director went, well, fuck it, just hire Laura Linney. The, The problem with that is it doesn't really make sense for her living situation for her to be in England, but I think you can kind of pass it off. Uh, because I will say it now, like the reveal is that she's getting called all the time in the film. And you don't know who it is, and it turns out that it's her brother who is in a, I don't know, a care facility or something like that for mental health problems. Why wouldn't an American and her American brother, who've clearly grown up in America but are now in London, why would they both be there? I think the only way you can explain away is she says that both parents are dead, so maybe they flew the you know, the brother over because she had to be in London. I yeah, know. I think she had to be in London for the job, so she flew him over to be cared for the, by the NHS, which is free. I can guarantee you two there have just overthought it more than the writers <laughs> did. Well, that was the thing. Like, they'll say, yeah, why not hire Laura Linney? He says, well, she's American and she... Oh, fuck it. <laughs> that was Richard Curtis's level of thought into it. To give them credit, it's not they're not supposed to be great works of art, are they? They're mindless drivel that you watch for an hour and a half in the cinema on a date. If you want to talk about great works of art, the bloke that she fancies. Whew, my goodness. <laughs> it's quite nice actually to have a film where the male is the object of like ridiculously you know, I'm not saying Laura Linney's not a very attractive woman, just this guy is a fucking and literally, at one point, he's in his underwear and he's like, he must be an underwear model. He is a dish. You look like that in your underwear. You have to model it. <laughs> you yeah, know, he, it's a rule. You have to he tell the world. The, yeah, he did have <laughs> the, the Bond girl experience. He didn't speak and was just yes. in, in his kex the whole time. <laughs> that is true, yeah. This is the one time in the film where it's like the other way around. The bloke doesn't speak. But again, he seems to be in a much nicer job than she is. So the power dynamic isn't quite the way yeah, it's it not is. Perfect. She has to be told by her boss to sexually harass this guy. <laughs> so, <laughs> come on, just grab him by the arse and tell him you love him. I'm Alan Rickman and I'm telling you to grab his bum cheeks and spread them apart. <laughs> And then what? <laughs> Tickle the inside. If you're going to try and get the listener off, Tom, get, get him to the end. You know? Tickle the inside until he says bazinga. Alan Rickman, wingman. Now that's a role that we never got to see him play, unfortunately. Tell her she has nice boobies. Anyway, we go to Bill Nye doing promotional work for his single, saying how crap it is. Uh, chatting with Marcus Brigstock, who I'm very sad now that I've seen him on Twitter that he's not doing the whole radio DJ voice in his Jeremy Vine impersonation, because that is a work of art. So we've had Junior Simpson and Marcus Brigstock. Are they just like trawling through the circuit in the year 2000 for these people? Is that what the situation is? Yeah, if, like, if you were to do it today, I guess you'd be casting people like Nish Kumar... James A. Caster, I don't know, and getting them into these very small roles, and they're like, well, he wrote Blackadder, so... Uh, you know. <laughs> That's so exposure, isn't it? 
So yeah, Bill Nye says that his best shag was Britney Spears and then says that she was rubbish. Again, it's one of those things where it's like Richard Curtis just like, who's at the top of the charts? Ah, Britney Spears. I watched Red Nose Actually, the short uh, sequel that Curtis wrote a couple of years ago. And in that one, they have Hugh Grant dancing to Hotline Bling. So to make that very 2017 as well. Yeah. <laughs> isn't the, uh, the, the shag he mentions in the 2017 version... One of the Kardashians. Yep, yep. It really again. It literally copy paste. Control <sighs> F. So now we get to the cabinet meeting four weeks before Christmas. They're telling Hugh Grant that he can't be bullied by the president, and then Hugh Grant's like, "No, no, I think we will be bullied." The sort of rare moments of prescience. Like I'm pretty sure those exact words were said in in more recent cabinet meetings. And then he asks, "Who do you have to screw around here to get a tea and a chocolate biscuit?" And Tiffany arrives on cue. Am I the only one that's noticed that McCutcheon and Grant have sort of got the romantic chemistry of a diseased yak of the telephone pole? Just utter tripe. It doesn't seem to work, does it? I think it is that sense of, like, they're trying to go for some sort of My Fair Lady vibe, you know, but they don't. Richard Curtis is confused trying to write for the working classes as Hugh Grant is trying to talk to them. So it just doesn't work in any way, shape, or form. What do you think, Mike? <laughs> yeah. Mike, are you just doing the crossword whilst we're, we're having this? <laughs> I mean, you're not half wrong. <laughs> ah, Sudoku. Do you, when you do your Sudokus, do you, do you cheat and... Well, I don't know if it's cheating, but what do you think of like writing in like pencil all the potential numbers it can that's, be? That's the coward's way. I don't understand Sudokus. It's one of my greatest weaknesses. I can't even get on board with them. I can't be bothered. And I've never learned how to do them, so I don't know how. I go through a Sudoku kick once every couple of years. Well, it's still on my phone, but then I got Candy Crush and it just got kind of... Yeah, I've got an app on my phone I visit occasionally just to, like, drown out the world. It's nice. I, I tried to do it as, like, sort of mental breakfast for a while. I'd do it on the on the train going into work because it is, like, a way to sharpen your mind at the start of the day. Mental breakfast. Bacon on your frontal lobe. I like it. <laughs> Cornflakes for your cerebral cortex. <laughs> <laughs> Brain eggs. <laughs> Frosties for your frontal lobe. <laughs> Bagel brain. <laughs> and we're done. Right, I don't know where we are, but um, at some point there, uh, the child who's lost his mum. That's my next note on here. Anyway, Sorry, so, it's, yeah. it's just, it makes you sound like some, some lost boy in a supermarket. The, the boy who's lost his mummy. Well, his, his mum's away. Well, his mum's dead. Yeah, away is another His mum's away in the ground. Well, one of the things that they say is that Liam Neeson is his stepdad. Do they specify that either his dad is dead also, or that his dad's just a piece of shit that wants nothing to do with him? I assume piece of shit. Yeah. But Liam Neeson's there sort of worrying about the child because he's not come out of his room for ages, and he's like, oh, he's worried about his mum, he's worried about his mum. Then when he chats the child, couldn't give a shit. Couldn't give a shit. <laughs> Literally couldn't give well, a well, shit. He's already, lost, he's already lost his dad. It's like, don't worry, I'm experienced with it. Don't worry about I'm it. I'm a fucking orphan. Like Liam Neeson, he says this big long um, sentence, words, Michael. He's, he, he talks for ages about, oh, it's, you know, it's upsetting your mom and stuff, but I'm here to look after you. He's like, nah, it's not about her. I just fancy a girl at school. <laughs> and it's like as blunt as that. If I'm honest with you, Liam, the mum dying is going to be a great angle for me to bring up next time we're uh, looking for small talk with her. Then the kid goes into like an existential crisis about love and like, you're fucking ten. Stop it. He's ten, he looks seven, and he has the greatest vocabulary I've ever heard in my life. Yeah. 
<laughs> Richard Curtis does not know how to write for children or women. It's always awful, isn't it? When they don't know how to write for children, so they just decide they'll make the children precocious. Aaron Sorkin's terrible for that. Yeah, but... Uh, also, you forget, uh, before then, Liam Neeson's on the phone to Emma Thompson... And Emma Thompson points out that no one will shag a sissy. That everyone's really keen for him to start having as much sex as possible <laughs> immediately after his wife has yeah, died. Again, because this whole film, I had to remind myself a couple of times, it's spread over five weeks. Yeah, because yeah. there's so many. Things. Well, that was that was one of my notes at the end. Because at various points in the film, he, he references Claudia Schiffer and how he wants to hook up with her, and he will ditch his stepson at the first sight of her. Uh, if, in fact, I I theorise. <laughs> Because I don't think it's... I mean, the movie's been around now for 17 years. I think we could officially declare Claudia Schiffer turns up at the end. It feels like every time time he mentions her, it's like Beetlejuice. <laughs> and then she just pops up at the end like, you've said Claudia Schiffer three times. Yeah, if, that, if that were true, Tom, then Scarlett Johansson would be a constant visitor to my house. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to have Colin Jost going along as well. Oh, That's part of the deal. God. If there was a face for white privilege, it is literally Colin Jost. <laughs> See, I didn't understand the reference there, so I thought he meant every time he mentions her, another body part <laughs> moulds onto oh, her. Oh, God, that'd be horrible, <laughs> wouldn't it? Just body <laughs> part. Claudia Schiffer, and then, like, a foot arrives. So is it again, it's the rest, it's a knee, you know? Is it like that Black Mirror episode where you get all the parts in a box... And then you've got to put them together. Where she gets I'll Donald right she back. gets Donald Gleason back in a box. And she's piecing him together. <laughs> but in this part, yeah, every time you say Claudia Schiffer, she just yeah, she grows another part of <laughs> It's, it's yeah. a toe. <laughs> it's like um, those bit part mo- bit part models you get in magazines every week. We'll get to that part then, uh, where ne- uh, Liam Neeson uh, bumps into Claudia Schiffer and that's way at the end. That's ages away. You're Sam's dad. Yeah, stepdad. I don't know why you felt the need to clarify that. <laughs> <laughs> no, not biological. Do I look like his dad? No. Yeah, I could I could have pissed off when that bitch died. <laughs> that's true, actually. It's probably like, that's right, stepdad, but uh, the dad's a piece of shit, but not this stepdad. I could have sent him to his arm. And that was my notes. Spark fly literally four weeks after they were at the funeral. Well, this whole thing, again, this is going in the future going into it but how we think people fall in love is yeah, beyond yeah. me like <laughs> people are getting married after four, they're saying they love each other after three weeks I don't even know a surname after three in weeks in this reality <laughs> four days four, four weddings and a funeral takes part over a bank holiday weekend the whole film does <laughs> but like we're getting into um, oh, what's his name the posh one I mean they're all posh yeah the writer. Oh, um, Colin Firth. He falls. He falls in love in less than a week. Uh, living because because you know as we all do when we split up with our girlfriend, we move to a French countryside idyllic home with a a regular cleaner who comes in every. How can you make that much mess in one day to require a cleaner to what is frankly a deliberately rustic look anyway? So you don't want it to be too fucking clean. In order to get your authentic experience whilst you write up your novel on a fucking typewriter. That annoyed me. It's 2003. There's definitely computers. You fucking hipster, Colin Firth. (laughs) And like, their big scene where they fell in love is he's typing outside. Clearly he's cold. He's wearing three layers. (laughs) He's got a great big jumper, a shirt and a t-shirt. And it's windy. You can see it's windy. It's like... 
he's typing on a pissing typewriter. She goes to move a cup of tea, and the book falls in the river. Oh no! Oh no! And that's they fall in love forever and ever and ever. Yeah, he, he doesn't fall in love with her until she gets a kit off her. Well, you know yeah, he that. falls in love with her at the sight at the sight of a tramp stamp. It's like, ah, she's a woman that makes <laughs> rash decisions. <laughs> she's a goer. <laughs> but if anything, this film has taught us always back up. <laughs> don't write your don't write your book on a typewriter. Do it on a computer and save constantly. Do the autosave for every half an hour. I just realised actually the state of the paper at that point is, like I said, is probably what the paper looked like when Richard Curtis dumped it on working titles front door. <laughs> Make that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but literally, like, admittedly, she has got a she's got a kit up at that stage, and they've got this whole cutesy thing going on where because um, she can't speak English, he says something, and she's saying the exact same thing. And what is she Spanish? Is it Portuguese? Portuguese, sorry. And then they've got the line again. Was it you? You leaving is my favourite part of the day because I get to drive you home and all this. And she's saying it's the saddest time of day. But it's like you've known each other all oh, week. Piss off. It's so like I know it's a movie. Okay, that's the thing you can argue against all these but there's things. Two, but there's two of these. There is two weddings when they've known each yeah. other for less than a But it's too many movies. Like I said, if you wrote this over a feature-length story, maybe you can convince me. But it's like four scenes and that's it. Well, surprisingly, this is one of the subplot lines that was supposed to be a full film that Curtis was writing, and then he gave up and then just added it into Love Actually. Oh. So it's this and the Prime Minister one. Yeah, yeah, I can believe it. So you could totally understand that given time, it could have blossomed into that. But he just cut his losses, threw it into another film and just ran away with it. Well, I would have thought the Liam Neeson one as well. I would have thought that's one where Richard Curtis was like, Ah, Widows, this is emotional. This will bring me the Oscar. Oh, no, I can't be asked. We'll put two scenes into this one. (laughs) But we also got to get back to Alan Rickman. And his secretary, who I at this point decided to describe as walking vagina, because that is what she's presented as throughout the rest of this film. I ex- she's like pleasure bot five thousand or something like that. I exist. <laughs> I made the note. Uh, slutty receptionist is being a slut. Yeah, in the reception area, and in the coffee break area, and in the uh, the coffee's Christmas office. party, and in his office. She whispers into his ear at one point, basically, I exist to please you, or something like that, essentially. You're a man of power, let me touch your penis. Yeah, and, <laughs> and Alan Rickman's like, oh, Lord, show me how to say no to this. I don't know how to say no to this. That's a Hamilton reference, if neither of you are aware of uh, where I was coming from with that. Absolutely not. Oh, you've got to watch Hamilton. So Laura Linney's doing the classic stalker thing, but because it's a woman, it's charming, of waiting for the other person to be the last one in the office and also being there. Then he says goodbye, and that's it. So really worth those extra hours there, Laura. Tiffany drops off some files, and Hugh Grant realises he feels uncomfortable not knowing anything about her. She lives in the dodgy end of Wandsworth. Hugh Grant asks her, as as we always do to working class people, if she has three illegitimate children. But no, it just turns out she's split up with a boyfriend who told her she was fat. Which is another, like, like within Hollywood structure, yes, like, Martine McCutcheon is as large as a woman's basically allowed to be in a film. Yeah, they, they, they call her fat throughout the thing with massive thighs. I'm like, no. No, no. It's like that, no. have you seen that bit? It's that bit in 30 Rock where Jenna comes back having put on, like, maybe 30 pounds of weight or something uh, from doing a Mystic Pizza musical over the summer. And Alec Baldwin says she needs to lose 50 or gain 100. We can't do in between. 
So, oh, at that point, Hugh Grant looks up to uh, Margaret Thatcher's painting to ask if she has this kind of problem, you saucy minx. I mean, she she made sure to fuck as many miners as she could during the whole time there. And that brings us back to the Keira Knightley storyline. Hey! (laughs) Andrew Lincoln's on the phone with Chiwetel Ejiofor, who patches him over to the 18-year-old Keira Knightley. They're already back from their honeymoon. November, that that peak time for honeymooning. (laughs) She wants to look at the raw footage of the Christmas party. Do you reckon they just went down to like Skegness or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's a tie into our next episode. I don't know. Possibly. Uh, she wants to look at the raw footage of the Christmas party, so she's going to venture over and see him later on. Liam Neeson is prepping Jojen Reed. Uh, sorry, that's why I had him written down as in this script. <laughs> His stepson. Briefly, briefly panics that he might be a boy that he's in love with, but uh, no, don't worry about that. Not in this film. <laughs> no gays in London. <laughs> I mean, to, again, to give it credit, that would be a big step. A step. Not really in 2003. Not if you've you got 100. And to be fair, actually, I remember. No, I remember this. I watched it for whatever reason. I watched the deleted scenes to this. And they cut out a whole subplot about two lesbian lovers. Yeah, Anne Reed and Frances Delator. She was. Uh, Anne Reed was supposed to be the uh, headmistress of the school. That all the kids go to. I'm not. I'm not saying they should have been. I'm just saying for this film, that would have been very strange to have a 11 year old child dealing with his sexuality. Child, <laughs> yeah. but like you said, no gay people in the whole thing. But there are. But they just get. They just cut that yeah. out. They're superfluous. We don't need to worry about the gays. <laughs> but but the child the child having uh, gay thoughts would be a very much a right yeah, turn yeah. for this film. You know, the gays can just look at the Brazilian architect. It's fine. Yeah, that would do it. That would do it. It's like the, the, the moment when they're all, all the cast members are all coming together. You know that moment in all the films where the ensemble all come together. Liam Neeson just sees that guy and shields his eyes immediately. No, he wouldn't be having any of that. <laughs> then we get to actually probably the best bit in the whole film, which is when Bill Nye's on a random not SMTV show with Anton Deck, or as he likes to say. Ant or deck at one point. And that is the one very, very good joke. And they also they all take the piss out of Blue. I don't know why he picked again, it's just like that is obviously like what his daughter was into like eighteen months ago when he last gave a shit what his children were doing. <laughs> it's weird to watch this now seventeen years later and see what a, a weird little micro Yeah uh time capsule it is. The biggest band in the world at that time, or the biggest uh boy band in the UK at that time was blue. Or at least the biggest boy band that they could get the rights to have appear on the screen. <laughs> you know, they could use yeah. the image rights. And like you say, <laughs> like having Dido in the in the soundtrack and the Sugar Babes producing the lead single. Did, uh, cameo appearances at the end by Shannon Elizabeth and Denise Richards being big gets for them. <laughs> yeah, and like the, they, they really bigged up Elysia Elysia Dushku. Uh, Cuthbert. No, Dushku's the brunette from uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, you're right, it's Alicia Cuthbert. You are correct, yeah, sorry. Uh, big enough <laughs> her, fresh off of 24. Yeah, yeah. Stepping through the bar, they made that quite an iconic image. And just... What's crazy, though, is that it's also a pre-Mad Men January Jones. Yes. Pre-Mad Men and pre-X-Men. Yes. <laughs> it was her pre-Men stage. <laughs> Chris Marshall was the first man she ever encountered. It was all uphill from there. <laughs> poor, poor girl. Uh, oh, this is my note now. Uh, I'm just going to read this whole note out for you. Rickman's secretary tells him about dark venue for the party and throws her vagina at him. So that's where we are. With that one. She does use it like a weapon. Doesn't she? <laughs> it's like it's like a home. Do <laughs> you remember Eddie Murphy's routine about his uh, his mother's slipper? As she could throw it 
like from distance. That's the same thing with this woman's vagina. She can just throw it in. Well, only to one person. Yeah, that's true. It's not that slutty if you just want to sleep with one person. She's laser focused in this, in that regard. Well, you say that. I mean, there there is a scene later where she gives someone the come fuck me eyes. Yeah, yeah, she does give that. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, Colin Firth uh, in Kansas Cleaner for the first time in the order that we were talking about originally. And to be fair, his one word, one way of trying to connect with someone from Portugal was to say Eusebio. And in 2003, I would have probably been my only way of connecting to a Portuguese person as well. Now we've got Cristiano Ronaldo. You know, we've got a bit of options there. Or maybe <laughs> Luis Figo at that point. I don't know. <laughs> uh, possibly. Yeah, he had gone to Madrid at that stage. So 2000, he went to Madrid. The problem is Richard Curtis's knowledge of football is that David Beckham has a right foot. Eusebio was a player for Portugal. <laughs> and David Beckham has a left foot. And that's about it. And here comes another, wow, this was a get for 2003 cameo as President of the United States Billy Bob Thornton turns up. Uh, but not with his wife, whilst Hugh Grant mentions that he's never been able to tie a girl down. Well, he should have auditioned for Fisher Shades then, shouldn't he? And, you know, no offence to Billy Bob Thornton, but like, um, this is poor diplomacy from Hugh Grant at one point trying to imply that out of the two of them, Billy Bob Thornton's the looker. They pass Tiffany from EastEnders and Thornton compliments her pipes. Now, isn't that meant to be like... That's throat, isn't it? Your vocal cords. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Lungs. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, he, maybe, he'd heard, maybe he'd heard This Is My Moment and was impressed. Perfect moments. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe it's one of them different words, like they say sidewalk instead of pavement. <laughs> you know, in America, legs mean pipes. I don't know. It's such a weird way of describing them. It's like weird, pipes. though. <laughs> I, I hate Billy Bonford in this so much because he feels so... I know it's quite his style, but it's so fucking wooden. It's like he's an oak cabinet. Well, it's, it's, he's not George W. Bush, but he's meant to be George W. Bush. I think he's basically trying to be George W. Clinton. Yeah, that's right, actually. You're right. Yeah, that's what they're going for. That's true. Because Bush Bush was still fairly fresh. Clinton was still f- kind of fresh in the memory. Yeah, well, it's not, that was the whole thing. Like, Blair's relationship with Clinton and then his relationship with Bush. These are the early stages. Have we got... I don't know. I guess when they would have started production, we wouldn't have gone into Iraq yet. So, you know, giving Hugh Grant slash Tony Blair a stirring speech at that point wouldn't have been quite so get fucked. <laughs> we yeah. wouldn't have been after that. But um, well, it's, it's so lazy. Like, there's so little effort. Like, they're just saying they're being consistent with the policies of the previous generation. Uh, previous- they don't say, what the- what are these agricultural policies? Are these, like, literally nothing. Like, it's like the sort of dialogue that I... Actually, I was more into politics when I was 14. I could have probably written more detail. You know, it's like someone who doesn't follow politics. Write a scene about politics. Uh, Our politics will not change. But those politics don't help our politics. Well, we're Americans, so we don't have to change our politics. Ah, politics, politics, politics. Yeah, but at the same time, if you had had a a 10-minute bit where they're discussing... um... EU regulations on building construction things. That's not a film. That's not film worthy. That's fine. You, 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 I think that's overly criticising for no need. It's a silly little, it's a silly little rom-com. It doesn't give a shit. All, all they needed to say was just tariffs and I would have been fine. It's, it's too vague is the problem. Be vague but not who, too vague. Who gives a shit? It's not about... We do. The that's the whole point of this podcast, Michael. You great big nerds. They want, to, well, they want to make a political statement then afterwards about the greatness of Britain and how we've got to teach America a lesson in our special relationship. But buggered if if Richard Curtis can think of one thing that actually means anything within that. You can't you can't claim the credit and then not do the work. I just don't think it matters in any way. 
they want it to matter. So if they want it to matter, they've got to do the work. Because that speech is meant to be, like, even though it's put in the middle of the film, it's clearly meant to be like, a, when this was his script, it was his fucking page 90. And then he was like, oh shit, I can't do that. Instead, I've got to put them into the, everyone gets together because it's now an ensemble piece. So I'll just stick that final scene in, oh, page 50. There we go. <laughs> Through it in the dark. It does feel like. I mean, did you ever see those Mitchell and Webb sketches where they've got two writers that lazily write vague versions of like hospital dramas and law procedures? I can believe that, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, literally, it's just a case of the, the saying the sketch, like, yeah, we were going to write it. Then a little paperclip popped up and said, it looks like you're trying to write a law procedure. Do you want any help with that? And they clicked yes. <laughs> and that's kind of how it feels written for the all the political elements of this. Exactly. Uh, anyway, it turns out Hugh Grant's sister is Emma Thompson. She just knows everyone. While she just is, seems to be just a housewife to Alan Rickman, who then takes that moment, uh, this moment to mock her listening to Joni Mitchell. Just This is just backing up my point that it's based around a playlist from Radio 2. <laughs> <laughs> he's written a film over... He's written, and actually, I, I, I was going to say it was the end, but I genuinely did test it. Just picking up... I watched this about three in the afternoon on Sunday. Sorry, um... Christmas Eve and um, uh, bonfire night. Paul 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 Grady was on. Paul Grady was on, and uh, out of the ten times I checked between watching this film in the afternoon, two of the songs that are in the film were on Radio <laughs> Two. It's a Radio Two playlist. That genuinely is, yeah. honestly. Uh, I think I, I genuinely think he only chose Joni Mitchell as well because obviously you know the, the song that they reference is the one that uses the Jingle Bells opening and then turns into a the river, which is a much more. Uh, a plaintive song about Christmas, which obviously Richard Curtis thinks this is his serious storyline in the whole film. You know, the Emma Thompson, Alan Rickman, walking vagina love triangle. You know, this is my only note and this is all I want to talk about this now. Uh, Hugh Grant dances, a nation is charmed. Right, moving on. Two weeks to Christmas. I didn't even have a note for that. <laughs> you didn't have notes for That's that. That's more than it deserved. Didn't have a note for that. Just completely, uh, yeah, just skip it. But again, that that was one of the songs. Jump for the love was one of the Radio Two songs. Yeah, and that was the one that Girls Aloud covered for the you know the tie-in music video, which you don't really see that much these days. You know, don't you miss the days of Chad Kroger singing to clips from Spider-Man Two? No. <laughs> that was a good shit. That was a good enough tune. My favorite one of those is the one that Lionel Richie does to that film with a where they had uh, Helen Mirren and Barishnikov in it. I don't know what it was called. But it's Lionel Richie doing Say You, Say Me, and then it's just interspersing clips where suddenly someone very angrily dances. <laughs> so I was always like, growing up, I was like, what the fuck kind of film is this that Lionel Richie's singing to? Uh, two weeks to Christmas. <gasps> two weeks! Yay! Yeah. I've got now 18-year-old Kira Knightley turns up at uh, Andrew Lincoln's place uh, with a pie and wearing a train conductor's hat. Um, she... Always thought that Andrew Lincoln didn't like her, but then it turns out that all he filmed for the whole time is raw footage is two minutes of her face. And that's when she realises he's been in love with her this whole time. Or he wants to, you know, wear her skin like a mask. <laughs> that too. I, I, that was my note to get to. The editing is very strange. Knightley realises she stumbled onto Lincoln's wank bank. <laughs> <laughs> He had a very wanky flat as well, didn't he? Oh, twat flat of ever <laughs> That was that was that was um, right. Yeah, it's his whole job right that he owns dishes. the art gallery that they use because he's like because he's in front of those pictures of asses at one point with loads of schoolgirls giggling, and he says it's not funny. 
He's like, yeah, we know. We've watched this whole fucking film. So Lincoln paces around frantically and freaks out at what's just happened whilst Dido plays, which, you know, happens to all of us when we hear Dido, I suppose. So, you know. <laughs> what has my life done that's led me to this? <laughs> why Why are all the creepy bastards in this thing treated like romantics? It's just sending out a bad message. Because that's what romantic comedies were until women were finally allowed to ride a couple, you know? <laughs> also, it's, I think it's worth noting that we're now halfway through the film and at this point everyone's fucking miserable. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, As they should be this close to Christmas. <laughs> uh, and also, Hugh Grant's personal private secretary makes sure to make jokes about Tiffany's weights. I was like, were they trying to play it up that she fancies Hugh Grant as well and he's trying to undermine Tiffany? I don't know. Well, no, they both fancy each other. He was going to ask her out, but then the president and grabbed yeah, her and, and and so as a result of that, Hugh Grant asked her to be redistributed. I forgot about that. Yeah, because Hugh Grant has to go. Such a lame setup. It's like Lorcan. That's one of the plot points. That's one of two. <laughs> Billy Bob touched my crush. Now send her away. Well, that's the that's the notes. I'll, I'll bring that up now, actually, because um, later on he gets a, he gets a box with uh, loads of Christmas cards in it. I don't know. If that's meant to be from like politicians or what have you. Um, and he says, yeah, Grant, Hugh Grant goes through Christmas cards, including one from Tiffany, who apologises for being sexually assaulted by the president. <laughs> 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 which, which, you know, is yeah. the right thing she should have done. <laughs> yeah. And that was the big push for him to go and find so, her. So, yeah, uh, Jojen Reed finds out that his love is going to back to America. Again, it's like just everyone's from America. There's not one Canadian in this whole film. Can't we have a Canadian at least? You've got to go back to the airport somehow. So then Liam Neeson and Jojen Reed cheer themselves up by watching Titanic. These guys have a weird notion of what 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 human behaviour is, basically, I guess. I don't know. The first first hour is pretty fun. It's a bit of a... I don't know what happens at the end of Medicine. Titanic is a good film. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no spoilers. I do love at one point Liam Neeson points out that there isn't just one person for all of us. To which his stepson says, oh, but there was for Kate and Leo. Well, A, that was a work of fiction within a real story. And B, she marries and has kids afterwards. So she clearly must have met at least one bloke that was like, you'll do. Yay, compromise. That's that's the most thing that annoys me the most about the whole, the one. Fuck off. You know, it's like... It's ruined the Stone Roses song, This Is The One For You, as well. This is the one. Fuck <laughs> off. This is the one. Fuck off. This is the one. <laughs> I'd very much like my girlfriend to note that I'm staying silent about this family. <laughs> like, st- but still, it doesn't matter, relationship or not, there's no such thing as the one. You know, if you move town 10 miles, you'll, there'll be somebody else. Yeah, well, that's the weird thing. I don't think they... they... They kind of didn't play off the him being in love with that girl quite as charmingly as I think they should have done. Like, it wasn't charming enough. The moment when she's singing All I Want For Christmas Is You and she points at him, but then she points to other kids. His face reaction at that point is like, uh-oh, another incel's been born. <laughs> Suddenly turned into the Joker. <laughs> I found that confusing because, like, obviously I work in a primary school so I can roughly work out kids' age. And, like, he was claiming to be 11. He looked about 7. She was claiming to be 10. She's about 14. The age difference was quite noticeable. It was very odd. You know? That's the thing about Americans. They grow up quickly. But it's just the casting of it. It's like, well, if you're going to get a 10-year-old, get a 10-year-old. No, don't get a 7-year-old. To be fair, girls do grow, like, tall, like... No, no, I meant, I meant the lad. The lad The lad is clearly 7 years old. He's not... No, I think he's no, older he was, than that. He was 13 yeah. during production. He just, you know, like, now he's in his 30s, I think. So, yeah, that's... Yeah, he's, uh, about, he's about my age. Yeah, yeah. 
he looked very yeah, he was just, well, yeah. you know, that's what happens, don't you get, that's, that's the crazy thing when, you, you know, you work at school, there must be kids who are like, four foot one, and their best mate who's two weeks younger than them is like five foot <laughs> eleven already, like, in, in year six, you know, I mean, how tall were you, Tom, when we got to, uh, he was born that size, year. his poor mother, <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I've, I've always been one of the taller in my year, so, I, I, I did have a lot of shorter friends who were actually older yeah. than me. Well, that was what was. I remember seeing it. Uh, I remember what, actually it was. Um, what's his name? So John Roberts, John Robinson, yeah, the darkroom yeah, yeah, yeah. guy, yeah. the Australian. Yeah, yeah, he did a great show. Uh, I saw him in Birmingham. He was doing his darkroom show, and he did one bit for the kids. He said, "All the kids come up, and you can all come up." And it's all these little kids, and like one girl that looks like she's about five foot eleven, and she probably is only like twelve years old. But you know, you're like, "Hey, kids only," and you know, I felt so. I always feel sorry for any kid that's like clearly got some sort of unusual appearance. Like you know that there's going to be whatever happens. You know, kids will find a way to be horrible to that one for the rest of their life. You know. Sorry, Tom. I mean. <laughs> But surely yeah. your height kind well, of, but, like, as a bloke, I guess the height was more of an easy kind of, well, let's not mess with him. But the lanky girl over there, let's make her feel huh. terrible about herself. Very much the opposite. Really? Very much the opposite. Everyone saw Well, they couldn't miss you, to be fair. Well, I've got another mate who's, like, six foot four, and he said he was, like, average height until he turned about 16, and then just suddenly he shot up. And it was such a surreal I mean, thing to happen. But for some reason, all that's coming to my mind is now is I'm, I'm a six foot five man with a very large head. I am essentially a sniper's dream. <laughs> to, to pick a phrase from Vic and Bob there. Uh, anyway, a more appropriately middle-aged woman is now providing Hugh Grant his tea. Colin Firth and the cleaner have an awkward farewell where she kisses him. Bill Nye's video turns out to be a rip-off to Robert Palmer's Addicted to Love, but the women actually finding a way to be even more sexually objectified. But that does also inspire the kid who was watching it at that point. It's like, that's what women like as musicians. And if I can play music like that woman licking her lips, maybe she'll really like it. To be fair, then. every kid who's been in the band, that's why. They think they'll attract girls. Every single yeah. kid who, from the age Absolutely. of 13 has picked up a guitar. <laughs> they want to get, they want to get, uh, you know, they want to get a little kiss, you know. They want to get off. Or a boy, yeah, whoever, whoever they're attracted to, that's what they want to get off with. They pick up a guitar at 13 thinking, well, I can't talk to people until awkward let's pick up a guitar uh so we're at the christmas party where the walking vagina is literally dressed up as the devil with the implication seeming to be that andrew lincoln was her boyfriend at one point like i don't know why they suddenly wanted to make those two characters be connected oh no no they were already connected um earlier in the film she arranged to have the christmas party at his yeah museum. that's right that's right yeah at his art gallery sorry so they were already friends beforehand, but I think Adam Rickman assumes that they are uh, I a see. couple. So the best, so the best bit in this whole film comes up later with Emma Thompson. And the story, like, like Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman, are just a class above this material. Oh my god, they really are. But like, even then, I'd, I'd always remembered the the bit at the end. But it's inconsistent because the implication I took at this point is that Emma Thompson is very wary and aware of Rickman's history of wandering cock. You know. That seems to be the implication, but then later on when she finds out that he is doing something, she's, like, shocked and heartbroken. It's, like, the first time he's ever followed through with it, I guess. I don't know. Thank God we're an hour and 20 But you're missing one of the key moments of the entire film and one of the most likeable bits of the actual fucking film. Yeah, yeah, I will get to that. But anyway, I just realised the walking vagina literally says, it's all for you, sir. That's what... That was the line I was trying to remember that she was saying. Uh... Like, I exist for your pleasure. Please insert yourself. Obviously, as I only ever half watched these films, but I didn't realise for a long while in that Alan Rickman was married to Emma Thompson. <laughs> no. 
Mike, have you been watching this at 1.5 speed again? <laughs> no, no, I'm not allowed to anymore. Um, I didn't pick it up straight away, so yeah. I just thought he was a lad trying to bang his secretary. <laughs> a utterly re- reasonable request. Although a lot of blokes will watch it going, I don't see what the problem is here. <laughs> so you just saw Emma Thompson's character as being a woman who's related to the Prime Minister. I didn't know she was their brother and sister because the relationships weren't really exactly... You know, established. No, they were they weren't very well sketched out. But until they until they jumped into bed together, I just thought they could have been brother and sister or something. Or what? It was never really established. Right? Well, that's the thing with all these ensemble films. It's always meant to be. Oh, we're all so connected. You can go down like the really wanky way, like Inuritos Babel or all the Robert Altman the ensembles or P.T. Anderson's Magnolia. But it's like, you know, we're all connected through theme or through experiences or whatever. Richard Curtis is, we're all connected. How? I don't know. Some of us are mates. We've got siblings, you know. Work out. <laughs> they run into each other at a wedding. <laughs> I like weddings. I don't like funerals as much, but I do like them too. Well, I think because in the first 10 minutes, they sort of established so many relationships and, you know, they're just like, blah, there you go. <laughs> I just missed that one. So it was like, until they, yeah, until the scene with Alan and, uh, yeah. Could you not establish the flow chart of relationships in your mind? Yeah, until they jumped into bed and they were because t- they, they were chatting about afterwards. Oh, she's a pretty one. After the um, she's a pretty one. You want to look out for that? Yeah. So Bill Nye exposes himself to Parky. Then Emma Thompson makes it clear to Laura Linney she knows Alan Rickman's going to fuck his secretary. That's again why I don't get why she's shocked later on when it turns out he fucked his secretary. It was never said that he fucked her. Ah, but did he? That was never said. She's basically saying, "I know what my husband's like." I don't know. Maybe she thought he's just he's a flirt or something. I don't know. But anyway, Laura Linney dances with the walking underwear model. The music, again, this is 2003. It switches from Justin Timberlake's first bash at solo stardom to Nora Jones. Driving right in the middle of the road of 2003. <laughs> Radio 2 playlist. You can smell Dermot O'Leary all over it, can't you? Nothing wrong with Dermot. Leave him be. Laura Linney and Pants model go back to Laura Linney's place. Laura Linney does a happy dance when they kiss. Oh, God, yeah, the celebrating behind the wall cliche. Fuck off. Well, at least it's a woman this time. Then we see Topless Linney! <laughs> what? That's a, that's a callback to that series. Oh, yeah. Topless Linney? Topless Laura Linney! From the makers of Topless Appleton. Although, as soon as we get Topless Linney, we get the phone call and she can't have any fun. Uh, also, again, early 2000s, Eva Cassidy's Songbird is on the soundtrack at this point. Uh, to be fair, I do prefer that version to the Fleetwood Mac version. I think she does a better version of it than Christy McVie. Controversy there, the, the floodlight. <laughs> Everywhere is a tune, and she, her vocals work good for that, but I was never a fan of her version of Songbird. I'm glad we established your opinion on that. So yeah, Laura Linney takes off a bra and the phone rings. That happens throughout <laughs> the film. Not Laura Linney taking a bra off, but a phone ringing. And like we say, it's a mentally unhealthy brother who can't get the Pope in for an exorcism or bon- John Bon Jovi. So again, Richard Curtis, <laughs> mental illness. Yeah, but I've got to put in some jokes, haven't I? Oh, come on. They want to knock about comedy. Come on, she cries later. She's sad about it. Brother wants her to come over. So, you know, she does later on and nearly gets punched in the face by her brother. Again, just such a quick shortcut. Richard Curtis, care. You've got to care. What? Nothing was built up to this. You don't... We don't have time for it because of the nature of the film and it's fucking lazy. That's the thing. It's fucking lazy. And not just how do you get two Americans over to live in, a, you know, in the NHS. Because we need an airport. <laughs> yes, and, and love is like an airport when you think about it. Something that only the well-off can indulge in occasionally. Lots of flying in and out. There's multiple people being fisted. <laughs> 
Look, and I'm sorry, you are overthink. You are overthinking this. It started an airport, so it's got to end an airport. Get him to an airport. Bring American in. <laughs> oh, and we just see the secretary walking around like she's in an M&S lingerie commercial. Well, you got to get your money's worth, haven't you? We've had Brazilian underwear model for the ladies. Yes, that's true. That is true. It's kind of like we, you get the shirtless scene for a Marvel yeah. superhero film. It's like, does Ant-Man need to be that ripped? <laughs> it's it's absolute fairness and equality, and I, I respect it wholeheartedly. Yeah, yeah, it's equality. It's equality. <laughs> Secretary wants to know what Rickman's getting her. When it comes to me, you can have everything. Again, it's just, I don't want something I need. I want something I want. Um, and then Rickman goes to the Oxford Street fancy London shop. I don't know which one it was. Sotheby's or whatever. It really, it really doesn't matter. Yeah, if it was the one that Mohammed Al Fayed owns, he would have insisted on a cameo. So it's not that one. <laughs> Rowan Atkinson sells him a two hundred and seventy pound necklace and does a gift wrap. Oh, whoa, 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 whoa! You are really skipping over this. The greatest thing in this film, Rowan fucking Atkinson. Atkinson really crafting a comedy masterclass here. Better than anyone else's in a romantic comedy. It's a bit that the whole point is that it goes on, but it just doesn't work to me. This doesn't work at all. And it doesn't even matter anyway, because Rickman just leaves afterwards. Like, could you have just waited when your wife wasn't going to be ten minutes away? To give Emma Thompson credit, she got that shopping done very quickly. <laughs> Fair play. Yes, she's, she's, a, well, she's an efficient woman throughout the whole film. She's getting everything done, and she's everyone's connective tissue, and she's got to hurl insults at various people in their horrible situations. Because Emma Thompson's wonderful. Well, she's a charm. She's a national treasure. We're one week to Christmas, Yay! and Chris has rented out his flat for the flight, and he's brought with him a huge bag of condoms. He's funny. It's he's like Barney from How I Met Your Mother. They do have condoms in America. I can confirm that. Really? You know, I I did audition for my family back in the day. Yeah, yeah. I was going for the what would have been the younger brother, I guess, the one that wears glasses in it. I never watched the show, and the, and the when we auditioned, it was like two years before it actually got made. Back then it was only called The Family. There's your little... Oh, they changed that a lot, didn't they? If you take nothing else away from this podcast, you will know that My Family was originally called The Family. My Family is... It starts off well. Chris Marshall has a really good uh, role in it as sort of a an idiot brother. But then once he leaves, they try and fill the gap with various different supporting characters and it never really works. And they really dragged it out for so long. I remember hearing that there was one script that was so bad. Robert Lindsay and Zoe Wanamaker literally said, we're not doing this. Because it was, it was rare in that it was one of those American-style writing teams rather than just a couple of people working on all the scripts. But when the, when the kids were young in it, they were kind of good. But then they, yeah. they were like 22 and they were still writing them jokes as if they were seven. <laughs> it, was the, it was the opposite of a Richard Curtis child character. <laughs> <laughs> And it almost felt like towards the end of the series, series I think they made the younger brother uh, homosexual. And it just felt like out of nowhere. You carried on watching? Yeah. Fucking hell. <laughs> I dipped in and out every now he and commits, then. commits, does Tom. He makes commitments. It wasn't as bad as My Hero. We can all agree on that. The My Sitcoms. It was the superior. <laughs> <laughs> Up there with My Wife and Kids. I mean, if we're counting the American stuff, you got My So-Called Life as well. That was it. And the original Simpsons pilot, My Funny Family. Mamma mia! Do you reckon it was the same one? They just took out the word funny because they knew it wasn't. <laughs> we're pushing it here, lads. We'll get done under the Trace Descriptions <laughs> Act. So Tim from the office asks Stacey from Gavin and Stacey out for a date while she's giving him a simulated blowjob. Also, I would have thought the love scenes usually in a film, you film them in a very short space of time. This is stretching over a four-week filming period. No, look, and this was this was the early 2000s. There was still money in the entertainment industry. <laughs> the porn industry really collapsed in 2000. 
We didn't have high speed internet. <laughs> Colin Firth's in a language centre learning Portuguese. Our language centres literally you all just sit down in a room together with headphones on learning various languages. So here's the bit where Emma Thompson discovers the gold necklace and then when she opens the Christmas present she realises it's a, a Joni Mitchell CD. Which is insulting anyway. You buy your wife a £20 gift. <laughs> Whether she knew or not that was a gold necklace I would be crying in the fucking room next to <laughs> Especially a modern day Joni Mitchell. <laughs> yeah, but like this is this is the best moments in the whole film this sequence where God, she's yeah. trying to keep it together and and just having a cry within as a, a, the short space of time she can and you just watch it going oh emma thompson's far too good for this exactly <laughs> exactly <laughs> whilst the walking vagina tries on her new necklace yeah all the misogyny that we're saying here is not misogyny we're endorsing by the way or at least i, I speak for myself i don't know about the rest of you <laughs> Chris Marshall is literally the worst human in the world, but he manages to hook up with... This this was the whole thing. Like, tonally, this is just completely the wrong film for this scene to be in. It just doesn't... I don't understand. Like, obviously, yes, sometimes Americans are charmed by the English accent, but they take it to... Like, it's just... I get... Is this just another Richard Curtis wank fantasy? Like, if I'd have gone to Wisconsin when I was 20, I would have had these people wait. Like, it's, it's deliberately meant to be silly, but it doesn't fit in with the rest of the film. I don't know why he kept it. You keep this and you delete the scene about the two lesbian lovers. I don't know what that tells you. Oh, and he says, praise the Lord, and they're delighted because it means he's a Christian. So Jojen Reed asks Liam Neeson how his love life is going. This is four weeks after his funeral for his mum. Liam Neeson says that he would have sex with Claudia Schiffer across the whole house and kick him out as the motherless mongrel that he is. Or if he says her name one more time, she'll appear like Candyman. (laughs) <laughs> uh, all I've got left to get now is the nose, the left earlobe, <laughs> most of the hair. Again, it's like one of those things, like he says blue. Maybe, I don't know if blue were even relevant in 2003. Claudia Schiffer's like a very 1997 reference to make now. Yeah, but he's a man in his 40s or 50s. Claudia Schiffer as well was just at the, the tail end of her popularity. Because if you remember, she was also in a, a music video with Westlife around that time. Uh, Uptown Girl. I remember she also did that car commercial where she took off all her clothes when she got into the car. Who, what car commercial was that? I need to Google it. <laughs> but people get stuck in sort of, sort of certain boxes, yeah. don't they? Like, I caught myself the other day, I can't remember what I was talking about, but some glamorous woman. I was like, oh, that's like Pamela Anderson. It's like, no, she's not been relevant since the 90s, you know. You just get stuck. And like when I go to football, like I still watch football all the time. But I still go to like Altieri Henry or whatever. It's like he's not, he retired 20, you know, 15 years ago, you know. With that line I said earlier, will some 16, if a 16 year old's listening to this for whatever reason, will they go, Scarlett Johansson, go home, granddad? That's awesome. It's all about Zendaya now. That's true, I suppose. Yeah, but yeah. I mean, if, if you're going this deep into it, it's not beyond the realms of possibility that a 50 year old man thinks Claudia Schiffer's hot. Well, know, I do think Liam Neeson and Claudia Schiffer, the age gap is probably not that much further apart still <laughs> than Chiwetel Ejiofor and the 18 year old Kira Knightley. So it turns out Bill Nye's got Christmas number one, Nelson John rings him to invite her to a party. Tim and Stacey are now fully clothed and they're feeling awkward around each other. Oh, she says, All I want for Christmas is you. She gives him a, a quick kiss. And then Tim... Then he goes away. That's that's an, that's an in. I'm I'm rubbish with um, dates and, you know, and understanding women. But <laughs> if you're outside the door <laughs> and she gives you a kiss and says, all I want is you for Christmas. 
Probably go in. <laughs> Test the waters. He said he charmingly jumps two steps off the ground and does his knee in. But it's alright, they're getting married like a day later, so it's fine. All I want for Christmas is you. Now, fuck off. <laughs> to be fair, aren't we all like that, though, with blokes? Like, we we sometimes misunderstand. We think a girl's into us when they're not, and sometimes they will literally be like the woman, it's, uh, Alan Rickman's secretary, will be like, I'm not sure if she likes me. I can't figure it out. <laughs> God, yeah. <laughs> in my 20s when I had offers, yes. Now, no, I just fall in love every 20 seconds. <laughs> Firth arrives to say hello to his family and then leaves because he's going to go to Portugal and ask a woman that he met two weeks ago who was working for him to marry him now. I love that, like, immediately as soon as he leaves, all the kids go start going, I hate Uncle Jamie. It's a very sensible decision. Although, to be fair, I thought, surely the logical thing is to have him suddenly see his brother and his ex-girlfriend there. Yeah. That would be a more sensible reason to leave. Yeah, like that, or... or... Would his brother and ex-girlfriend be banned from the party and they are the black sheeps of the family? <laughs> and now they're like, you know what, in hindsight, he was right to screw over Uncle Jamie. Come back in, all's <laughs> forgiven. <laughs> I mean, come on, lads, four weeks have passed. <laughs> <laughs> have a heart. Yeah. I thought that was quite... I, with the kids, I thought that was quite funny, to be fair. I did laugh at that. Carl leaves, Laura Linney stays. For some reason, they can't make it work because uh, Richard Curtis needs at least one tragic ending. She cries and rings her brother. Uh, Hugh Grant is sad and going through his red boxes. Jojo and Reed is packing the drums. Laura Linney hugs her brother. Uh, Kira Knightley answers the door to Li- Andrew Lincoln and his cue cards. Oh, fuck this. Fuck oh, this can piss so off. Yeah, how about we just don't talk about that one? Yes, please. Yeah, there we go. Everyone hates it. You've all, you've all seen it, but he's trying to break up a, newly, a, a couple that have been married for three weeks. And he's trying to seduce a teenager. Yeah. <laughs> literally trying to seduce a teenager. I mean, the other one married her, so, you know, that's probably worse. Also, Chiwetel Ejiofor is the dumbest man in the world. He's <laughs> just like, carol singers. Yeah, okay. Even with backing music. Yeah. And a, and a loud clicking sound before they start singing. Anyway, Bill Nye goes over to Rapsi Nesbitt's house to hang out at Christmas because they love each other, but it's a different kind of love. Although, again, I think they could have implied that, maybe they do imply that Rapsi Nesbitt is literally in romantic love with Nye, I don't know. Uh, they don't play it up if they do. If that is two, le- two fellas kissing on my watch. No, <laughs> but they have an awkward hug. What, what would that possibly lead to two men kissing? What? Why? 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 Yeah. Uh, so Hugh Grant's now going door to door searching for Natalie. Uh, sings a carol to three girls who start dancing to it. Devil woman, uh, walking vagina is at number one hundred. Just and... the devil. What? It would have been better if she was at six six six. But then she says, oh, she's next door, but is kind of like, well, there's my next catch of the day. It's a very full house, and she says, where the fuck is my fucking coat? Charmingly swearing. They go to the school concert where everyone that they can convincingly get to be together at that scene. Hang on, hang on, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, this is this is my one issue where I'm going to get angry, the one time I'm going to get angry okay. on my film. It's just a film, Mike, why do you care? <laughs> I've worked in education for ten years, right? Oh, so something that matters yeah, to you. Go on, Mike. I've worked in education for 10 years. I can guarantee there is no caretaker in the fucking land that is opening on Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, I know, I know of a caretaker who, when there was a big dog shit on the playground, all he did was put a chair over it. <laughs> <laughs> they are not opening on Christmas Eve for love nor money. Not even the complimentary sawdust. 
<laughs> no, just just a chair over the shit. <laughs> I like the fact that they've had to just add an extra line saying that oh that all the schools around have come together to do one big concert together because they're like but not on Christmas fucking well, Eve. Well, we can believe that Chris Marshall can have a fivesome with with four beautiful American women, but there's no way we're going to convince people that. Tiffany from EastEnders family and Emma Thompson's family go to the same school. That's just way too... Why don't we just have an alien land on the school at the same time? So we kind of addressed all the different things that happened at the Christmas path, at the Christmas concert in various places, except for like Hugh Grant and Tiffany kiss and then the curtains reveal that they're there and yet another final scene that Richard Curtis had written and then just had to slap him wherever he could in the script. Tim and Stacey are at the concert as well. I don't know why. Maybe they made a baby during the whole fucking thing. Maybe, yeah. The baby is fully grown. <laughs> it's it baby mentioned. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> Further eyes in Portugal, Portuguese airport, uh, allows a woman to get a taxi and then curses luck. But then, you know, first of all, there is no race against time. Second of all, another taxi turns up. That's what always drives me crazy when you do the race against time in the film and they can't even actually find a way to make it a true race against time. He just needs to get to her as quickly as possible. He, he made his nieces sad. Also, it's an, it's an airport. Like, there's lots of taxis there. <laughs> that's, that's kind of where they live. <laughs> Are we sure it was in Portugal? I thought he went back to Marseille. No, because they're all speaking Portuguese at that point. Because he sees his wife and, and like, her sister and, and dad doesn't. I, I could have sworn the airport said it was in Marseille. Maybe, maybe. And then there's, like, spray paint throughout the town that says in French. Okay. Maybe, I, I, maybe I'm misreading. You, you're probably right. I don't care. <laughs> the audience is the most entertained Christmas school audience I've ever seen in my life. Smiling at shit when it's not their children on stage is just not believable in the slightest. They love mediocrity, don't they? Yeah. Oh, and also uh, the guy who screwed over Walter White in Breaking Bad introduces one number. That was a nice little moment. Yeah, Adam Godley. He's so yeah. good. So much better than this. Uh, the All I Want for Christmas number happens and Jojen Reed takes a very dark turn at one point. Oh, with uh, with Ruby <laughs> Turner as well. That's is that who the singer is? Yeah, that's um, Ruby Turner's the mum who organises the choir. So then we see Hugh Grant and Tiffany kissing. Emma Thompson decides this is the best moment to call out Alan Rickman on his shit. <laughs> and, and just as their children are racing towards them. <laughs> and there are uh, other people around. <laughs> Yeah, Alan Rickman's a classic fool, is how he puts it. It's such a fucking middle-class way of saying it. I'm just such a classic fool. Yes, and I am the fool of me and my life. And again, like, this is something you could really deep... Like, you know, you give Emma Thompson and Alan Rickman a good fucking two-hour film about relationships and a marriage falling apart. It ain't this! She <laughs> so just threw what? her vagina at <laughs> me. Who am I? Alan Rickman to say no. You do not understand the pace and accuracy of the vagina throw. It was too much for even I to bear. The labia <laughs> landed directly <laughs> on me. Mike, we haven't heard any of your Alan Rickman. Let's have, let's have a quick verse of that. There's a reason for that. Yep, there's a reason. Hello, I'm Alan Rickman. You alright? About as good as mine. <laughs> uh, Liam Neeson hooks up with Claudia Schiffer four weeks after his wife died <laughs> in full view of the sun uh, Colin Firth arrives and asks the Portuguese cleaning lady to marry him it turns out that it's a fat woman oh no no but, 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 but. he does that is that before the whole town oh, oh yeah. God, yeah fucking hell 
Why would they give a shit? Well, it takes a village. The people like Marseille have nothing better to do with their lives. Marseille's a big city. That's like, oh, half of Birmingham's joining this French bloke to go off and say. I think it's just like the Portuguese district of it, though. Is there a Portuguese district in Marseille? Apparently. <laughs> I didn't know Portugal was this great struggling nation of people. Scattered to the nines of the country, the four corners of the globe. Because everybody wants to see how an Englishman who could barely speak a word of Portuguese is going to marry a Portuguese woman who could barely speak a word of English. No, he learnt it in a week because he went to one. Oh, of course, yeah. Another tape. He had a tape. He listened to it the yeah, whole thing. He listened right. to it on his. Uh... Which will be an hour because it's France to Yeah, England. he was doing it whilst he was doing shopping. <laughs> the father abuses the larger sister of the the Portuguese girl. Oh. Oh, lovely bit of fat yeah, shaming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jojen Reed can't get past the boarding area. Already they seem far too far into an airport for 2003. <laughs> uh, but that allows Rowan Atkinson to give us a second comedy masterclass. We are being spoiled now. But he had no interaction. Like his whole thing, because he gave a little at the end. He came along and wasted some time. And then he gave like a little whisper or like a little wink. Um, to Liam Neeson as if to say well I've delayed it so the kid can run through to say goodbye to his love but they hadn't met um, guys <laughs> I, again this is, an, this is another thing that was deleted uh, apparently Rowan Atkinson's character was supposed to disappear into the ether as he was an angel yeah that was what I thought he was meant to be because I was a guardian angel but all that he does is help Jojen Reed get to see the girl and like delay Alan Rickman getting his goal. So is the idea that he's supposed to be teaching Alan Rickman a lesson at that point that he doesn't heed. So you know, great guardian angeling done there, Rowan Atkinson. You've got an, uh, you've got a one for one record coming out of this thing. Ah, oh, it's just again, just so little thought goes into this whole fucking endeavor. Jojen Reed somehow is able to out seven year old, like a thirteen year old boy with the body of a seven year old, uh, is somehow able to out sprint four different security guards. Going through very elaborate, like, like no airport seems to be designed the way that this kid is running through. Yeah, he was able to <laughs> evade the entirety of Heathrow security on Christmas Eve. And like, and like they said at the start of the film, one minute, 40 seconds in, uh, 9-11 had just happened. Airport yeah. security was at its Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> he would have been gunned down with a, sh- a, a shower of bullets. Liam Neeson attending fucking another funeral at the end of the film. <laughs> I did all cool. I could to protect him. <laughs> uh, Claudia Schiffer's there to comfort him afterwards. Uh, he evades all security and then he goes and talks well, to the, the One of the reasons, though, was that the security was all uh, distracted by Bill Nye doing his strip show that he promised to do if he got Christmas number one. So that's, you know, it's, it's, it's a callback. Um... But Jojen's escorted by security. And as we've established, that was a long distance from the the airport to the security. And it seems like the little girl has followed him this entire time through the elaborate maze to get back to him in order to give him a little kiss on the cheek. But, you know. Yeah, but we are in a world where two couples here have got um, met met for the first time, told yeah. each other they love her, and then got That's married true. within four weeks. That is true, so. yeah. We're lucky that the, 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 the new generation knows to take it slow. They've seen how badly exactly. the grown-ups are screwing it up. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so, yeah. We're nearly there. Yeah, we're nearly Colin Firth makes his big declaration there. of love whilst he, the father, and the restaurant owner decide who actually gets to own this woman. Firth points out how ridiculous... I, d- I didn't mind the gag that Colin Firth's kind of giving a Google Translate version of the Portuguese language. 
You know, like, it's very mechanical and it's not actually romantic. That wasn't a bad idea. Again, that was, like, one of the three scenes in that original 100-page pile of shite that Richard Curtis wrote that he was like, well, this works. So, she agrees to marry him. God only knows plays over. And then we go to one month later, and everyone's at the airport, because God knows late January's the busiest time of the year for, you know, flights to and back from everywhere. Um... Thompson has a whole fuck you, it's a new me haircut going on as well, I thought. Maybe I'm misremembering that. Uh, but it, the implication the implication seems to be that they're in a very loveless marriage, but it didn't look like there was a lot of love there in the first place, in all honesty. But they're sticking together for the kids. Tim and Stacey are, are engaged. Chris Marshall turns up with Shannon Elizabeth and Denise Richards, who immediately kisses the other fella. Tiffany's there, she jumps into Hugh Grant's arms and he makes a joke about her weight. And then we return to a montage of actual people having their privacy invaded from long-distance lenses. (laughs) (laughs) And showing actual true emotion that this film could not come close to creating a facsimile of. And that was Love Actually. See, Michael, I thought you actually were enjoying this film at first when you first sent the message. Fine. I was honestly fine with this. Completely 100%. I don't really, I don't really know why we're reviewing it on this when it's a bad film. Well, we got, we got to do it for different degrees. Like this was a film that was given a lot of time, a lot of love, a lot of budget. You know, like in many ways, this being a failure on on so many levels is far worse than like Knights of the Damned. Is it though? Well, this is a professional production. Can you really call it a failure though? It depends what you define as a failure. It's made money and it's popular, but like it's definitely a film with a lot of flaws within it. Then, then it's a success. I'm not disputing that it's a success, but I'm also disputing... You said it was a failure 20 seconds ago. Well, it was an artistic failure. That's never... Being an artistic failure or success does not equate to being an actual real-world success. Well, I mean, it did win a BAFTA for Best Supporting Actor. Who won that? Bill Nighy. Fuck off! Bill Nighy <laughs> won the BAFTA for Best Supporting Actor in that film. And in at the Empire Awards, it won the Best British Film, Best British wow. Actress for Emma Thompson, and Best British Newcomer for Martin McCutcheon. Well, I think for the majority of people, it's like the only British film you see it every other year is whatever Richard Curtis, or if, if it counts as a British film, the James Bond film. So it's always going to win anyway. Like, this is as bad as scenes of a sexual nature, in my opinion. It's not. It's pretty simple. There is some laughs. It's, and also, it's not aimed for us. You know, it's it's a rom-com. It's a daft little silly rom-com. It's very, very good at being a daft little silly rom-com that people like. I like rom-coms. I like silly films. I like Richard Curtis in some respects. I like all the, all the pretty much all the people except Chris Marshall have been in stuff that I like. So it's not like I dislike anything about this just on face value. I gave it a chance and it failed miserably in my eyes because it's such a vapid, shallow exercise it's empty of anything. I didn't like it, but for what it is, I'd say it's verging on good, and I can completely see why people like it and watch it every year. It just felt like just too much of a blend of cliches and tropes for me to enjoy it, but I can see why it was popular. I get why it's popular, but I think that it's hollow, and and that's why I wanted to address it. You know, I look look in the great like obviously that Emma Thompson scene is is fantastic. There's too much talent on display. Compared to something like Knights of the Damned, where it's not, you know... But I, I hold them to a higher standard. And they had, like, a higher rung to cut to jump over than the, the than the Knights of the Damned people. They both failed, but theirs was more, you know, had a higher expectation on it, you know? It's all relative. And in relative terms, this is a terrible film. Yeah. But... Beauty's in the eye of the beholder, innit? 
Well, I get I... why people like it, but I, and I'm not gonna have a go at anyone. But this is this podcast is an opportunity to vent, and I'm gonna vent to my heart's content. Okay, this is for me the best thing we've seen in the series. No, it's it not is. the best thing we've seen in my. Well, it's better than virtual sexuality. It is. Oh my it god! Virtual sexuality. No, we we finally have a contender to virtual sexuality. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's like I said, it's completely fine. There is nothing. I didn't enjoy it, don't get me wrong, but some of the awful stuff we've watched where the plot doesn't make any sense and the acting's terrible and it was made for 20, 20p, this is fine. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with this. In terms of for what it's for what it's meant to be. What it's meant to be is a, a, a great declaration of the power of love and it doesn't do that. You, if you're going to fucking invoke 911 you better earn that. <laughs> That's a point. This film does not earn a 9-11 reference, does it? I'll give you that, yeah. So it's its own worst enemy in that regards. Just, it's the worst kind of self-indulgent fucking... Rich, the, everything that, like, Richard Curtis... Like, the worst elements of him to me is, like, he's lived this very sheltered, very, very pampered life. Even though half the, half the year he spends working on Red Nose Day and comic relief and charity causes and all that, which is obviously greatly admirable. Richard Curtis wrote Blackadder. I will always love him. But, you know, this kind of stuff is what drives me crazy about him. Like, you know, there are things about Aaron Sorkin that drive me crazy, even though I love Aaron Sorkin. And this is, like, the worst elements of Richard Curtis times 50 to me. Like I said, it's all the cliches and tropes. See, I don't like Blackadder either. Um, I've got no love for that. I've got, I've got no, no anything. Yeah, nothing. I don't like films as a medium. But this, <laughs> if, if, just not a fan of joy, are you, Michael? <laughs> I find plenty of things joyful. I just don't like films. But there's like, in, in terms of what this is, you know, this is a podcast with two film snobs and somebody who doesn't like films. You know, I honestly, I honestly don't think I like. I try not to be a film snob. But you are. No, no, I'm a film nerd, but I will like a, you know, like my, like my favorite film of like twenty a uh, couple of years ago was the Lego Movie. Surely, no film snob in a truest sense of the word would be able to be willing to do what is essentially a ninety minute commercial. Say that was the best film of the year. Only a film snob would say such a thing. <laughs> <laughs> that does sound something like a film snob would say. Trying not to sound like a film snob. Oh well, you just can't win, can you? You think the lady is, doth protest too much? Is that the story? Is that the true story of love? You can't fucking win. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, I say my, my summary of it is that it's a Radio Two playlist um, with a movie made around it. <laughs> That's not a bad summation of it. I did know. not mind this in the slightest. Well, why don't you marry it? Because you only watched it a couple of days ago, so it's about the right length of time. Well, in the spirit of Christmas, of which this is, <laughs> yes, of course, we have to wait until all the busy churches are open. And, you know. <laughs> I'll, I'll take a copy of it to the midnight mass. <laughs> Uh, can I throw a couple of factoids at you lads before we wrap up? Just so you know, actually, Tom, a, f- a fact about factoids. Factoids means it's not true. Well, these could be factoids then. <laughs> but yeah, possibly, yeah. So, according to Internet Movie Database, uh, Chris Marshall returned his paycheck for the scene where he was undressed by the three American girls. He said he had such a great time having three girls undress him for 21 takes that he was willing to do it for free. But it was in that was in the shadows, you could, didn't see him? Yeah, and it was genuinely him getting undressed at the time. <laughs> so he said, he said having three women undress him was like a dream job, so he returned his paycheck for that day. Oh, you couldn't say that now, could you? <laughs> I know, that would be me too. In my head canon now, 
He is um, Chris Marshall. <laughs> what we just witnessed is the dream of the character that he plays in those BT commercials. Is in a loveless <laughs> relationship with a with a divorced woman and her uncaring. That's a much more realistic depiction of a step parents and their kids than uh, Liam Neeson. In this, I one. wish I could be in Wisconsin. Wisconsin. <laughs> They have great phone rates. Another another fact for you. In the scene where uh, Colin Firth and his Portuguese wife are dicking around in the lake, uh, it turns out the water was only 18 inches deep. So they had to kneel down and pretend to be in deeper water. And also, there were so many mosquitoes, Colin Firth was badly bitten and his elbow swelled up to the size of an avocado. Yeah, that water looked very unsanitary when you consider the colour of what the paper was when she was lifting it up. Do you think it was, because it was where his script was going on it, do you think his script was so shit it turned the water (laughs) (laughs) I don't understand. We filled this with Evian water. (laughs) I've got uh, two more for you. So uh, the idea for the wedding surprise song, uh, All You Need Is Love. That came from Richard Curtis attending Jim Henson's funeral. Oh, yes, of course, yes. Yep. Uh, finally, Andrew Lincoln was initially unsure about his character as he thought the scene with handwritten signs was borderline stalker territory. Half of this film is borderline stalker. Uh, and it became the most iconic scene. Half of all romantic comedies are borderline stalkers. <laughs> in case you're curious to what happens to these characters in the Red Nose Actually sequel, for, like what 2017 so 14 years later Andrew Lincoln turned up in the at the house again with more boards and it turns out he married Kate Moss who's one of the women in the photos and he's grown a beard that no one's sure about which is obviously a walking dead thing uh, and it turns out Chiwetel Ejiofor knew they were there the whole time Liam Neeson and Jojen Reed he went off to America and he's come back with the girl that he was in love with and the she asks Liam Neeson for permission to get married to him so they're going to get married later on. We don't see Emma Thompson and Rick, Alan Rickman, obviously, for very sad reasons. Hugh Grant got voted out as Prime Minister, but has recently come back and tries to do another stirring speech. But even Richard Curtis was like, it's 2017, I can't make this shit cheerful. <laughs> so it's a very half-hearted effort. Um, oh, but but he does make a joke about how he wishes Piers Morgan was dead, and that did cheer everyone up. <laughs> oh, and uh, Rowan Atkinson now has... Uh, working in Sainsbury's rather than Harris. Yes. And just a really long queue forms. We don't see Chris Marshall obvious either. Uh, like I said, he's just blown his brains out next to a f- BT phone line or something like that. Colin Firth <laughs> is now a uh, father of three. Yes, but he can't speak Portuguese still very well. And he's about to become number four. <laughs> yep. And they're quite old kids as well, so again, they must have got down to it very quickly <laughs> in well, order got- to make this work. They got engaged pretty fucking quickly, so... Yeah. Fucking hell. They got engaged for about... Over the course of the length of this recording, I think. Pretty much. <laughs> so, say something nice about the film, or, or how we improve it. Which ooh, one do you want ooh, to take first? Ooh, ooh. Me first, me first. Go on, Tom. Tom. Emma fucking Thompson. Oh, man. Now we're... <laughs> Just the best. I will claim the Antor deck line. That's a funny line. Again, I didn't mind it. So no, but you got to think of something. What what particularly did you like? I really liked the um, surprise choir. So okay, that was very sweet. And how will we improve it? Obviously, don't touch a fucking thing, as far as Michael is concerned. <laughs> I think if we were to make it now. Obviously, you want to make it more multicultural and also more uh, inclusive of other non. Yeah, it's very heteronormative, but yeah, it's yeah. I'd also say pick like two or three and don't make <laughs> yeah. fucking mash of it. 
Yeah, and and get a consistent tone as well. Because Chris Marsh thing, you just got to get rid of that because it just doesn't match up with the rest of the film at all. Um, I think if you were to pick three, I guess, like I said, the Hugh Grant, I, and I don't even think it was like a deliberate thematic statement, but Hugh Grant, Alan Rickman, and Colin Firth are all in essentially the same situation, and it's being played for either charming laughs or a, you know devastating drama. Devastating drama, yeah. So I guess you either go. So I guess you go with the Rickman Emma Thompson storyline. I guess you've got to have the Hugh Grant Tiffany storyline, and maybe the Liam Neeson one. I don't know, maybe because like that whole thing, like the whole thing about a stepfather looking after a stepson. That's a whole as as a man who's also had a you know much longer relationship with my stepfather than I have my biological father. That's something that can be explored that I don't think gets explored nearly enough in film or TV. Step parenting in general. You basically got stepmom. With Julia Roberts and uh, Susan Sarandon, that's about it, really. Daddy's home. <laughs> yes, Daddy's home. I suppose as well. You got that too. Hey, you! Don't watch that. Watch this. Well, it's the obvious one to go with, I think. But I want to still big up Richard Curtis and ensemble romantic comedies. It has its flaws, but Four Weddings and a Funeral was basically the reason that we have Love Actually, and it still holds up. I haven't seen the sort of reimagining of it now with Mindy Kaling in charge. I don't know if that's worth a watch, but... Uh, oh, God, yeah, they were doing that, weren't they? Yeah. But it's got Natalie Emmanuel in it, so it can't be bad entirely. Remind me who Natalie Emmanuel is? The, the Khaleesi's translator in Game of Thrones. Ah, of course, yeah. Uh, Fast and the Furious films. Used to be well. in um, Hollyoaks for a bit, yeah. She was in some... Oh, Misfits, was it, that she was in? Maybe? No, I don't recall her being in Misfits. Anyway, so yeah, Four Wings and a Funeral. It's classic for a reason. And what, they did a Red Nose sequel to that as well, actually, which is much better than Red Nose actually as well. If you want to get in touch with us, my name is Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for actually. N for never going to fall in love to any of these, with any of these people. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterboxd. If you want to get in touch with the show, it's Bowob Pod, Twitter, Facebook, or what have you. And Bowob Podcast at gmail.com is our email address. Uh, gentlemen, if people want to send you uh, late, late Christmas cards, uh, how can they do so? I'm going to offer it to uh, Michael Bell first. Why, thank you. Well, if they want to um, find me, um, my name is Michael Bell. Uh, my Twitter is MichaelBell86, and that's all I'm giving you. So, uh, yeah, and it, well, of course, if you really want to find me, you can find me at my house, which is in the North Pole, for it is Christmas. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, me and Tom are if, if gigs are, if gigs are happening um, spoiler alert it's not can you remember Christmas. them can you remember comedy in the before times <laughs> yes so anyway uh, if gigs are happening I don't know probably not um, we're in a double act called the Kamikaze Club um, just check us on Facebook and everything um, if you want to see what we're like anyway Tom it was or you if you want to find me individually because I am the better one you can find me at Tom Hodkinson on pretty much everything so that's Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, uh, Habbo Hotel, um, whatever MySpace is these days. Uh, that's Tom spelt T-H-O-M because much like many of the characters in this film, I am quite pretentious. I also need a wife, so if anyone doesn't want to marry me. <laughs> he's got he's got a spare couple of weeks to fall in love. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, doesn't take long. it doesn't take long. He's got <laughs> a small place in uh, in France where he needs a Portuguese woman to come and clean exactly. up. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. You better not learn English. I'll take Emma Thompson if she's in a loveless marriage. I'll take it. She was lovely. <laughs> well, keep saying Claudia Schiffer. Maybe she'll appear. 
Okay, I'll, I'll keep doing that. Okay. That has been a recording where we made fun of and um, criticised people that wrote, uh, arguably, drafted, compiled, acted, and have all pretty much gone on to do great work throughout their whole careers. Also, they're minted. And I'm minted. I mean, <laughs> fucking hell, look at the place they're living in in London. Even that, even that house that Tiffany's living in <laughs> probably goes for a couple of million now. That's why there's about <laughs> 20 people living there. Yeah, yeah, Wandsworth has been done up. Wandsworth's nice. Yeah. This week, I walked as slowly on the patchy ice, trying to get, assuming that it was icy around Christmas time, <laughs> that Come I on. was briefly, mista- with that in my coat, I was briefly mistaken for a little old man. Because of how slowly I was walking. <laughs> As is tradition with the second episode of our series, it is finally time to end the trilogy to end all trilogies with <laughs> Holiday on the buses. The rise of Skywalker of this <laughs> British comedy caper sitcom big screen adaptations. Farewell, take care. Bye. Have a good Christmas. Merry Bye. Christmas. Good math.